and welcome to your Afrofuturist podcast. I am your host, Ahmed Best. Thank you for joining. Makleet is a singer-songwriter currently in the Bay Area and of Ethiopian descent. Her unique style of Ethio jazz blends the complexity of the rhythms of East Africa with the harmony and song acumen of American jazz music. Listening to her music is a really wonderful experience because it combines the best of those two worlds. As a TED Fellow, she was one of the creators of the Nile Project, where artists from countries around the Nile River Basin came together to create music that represented the beauty of the similarities between the countries, as well as the challenges of each country's nuance. She's recently been working with John Jenkins, the Kepler Mission Analysis Lead at NASA Ames Research Center, who makes these things called sonified data. He collects data from the Kepler telescope and he creates sounds based on the data. And McCleet takes these sounds and makes music based on the sonified data. We get into this, we talk about this, we talk about her influences, where she comes from. We talk about Ted and how she became a Ted Fellow and how she came about the Nile Project and where she just gets her inspiration from. How does she hear? She's a wonderful human being, a fantastic musician, and a fantastic guest. So please, please enjoy McLeet. Yeah, it's interesting because that TED Talk was almost like a string of moments that blew my mind that I later put together as a narrative. But when I approached the, like actually writing the TED Talk, I just wanted to come at it from a place of like, what has stopped me cold in my tracks, you know? And, and because I feel like there's a different, there's a different energy around those kinds of moments and experiences. And that's what I really wanted to share with people. So, so that's how, that's how he ended up kind of being woven in there because that was one of those moments where, you know, discovering his music, I was like, yes. Yes, you know, discovering that particular album. Yeah, well, I, I feel like you have a very special set of ears just from <laughs> listening to your music and hearing how you're inspired by sound. And it's not there aren't a, a lot of people who have that that special set of ears where everything is music. Well, it's interesting because I don't know if I always if it. I don't know if I always thought in that way, but it's this funny thing where I I discovered maybe just a few years ago, this, it's sort of, this is another thing that kind of hit me and stopped me cold. This moment where I really realized that, you know, to grow as a musician is to grow the way you listen to the world around you. And that the music that you make is only an outward reflection of what you hear. It's almost like the yin and the yang of it, you know? The the yang is the what you make, what you can share, what turns into sound, but the yin is this inner world, you know? And 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 that's why like when you it's funny with music like like to grow as a musician is to grow as a person and also likewise to grow as a person is to grow as a musician like if you free yourself of some emotional block, like watch if that's not going to change your tone as a singer. Like it's the same thing. So yes, absolutely. You know, the, the, the way we hear is the way we sound and the way we hear are the songs that, that we make. Yeah. When I was um, coming up in the 90s, I was in um, a show called Stomp 
on Broadway. Oh, yeah, of course I know that show. Yeah. And it was one of those things where it was like, you know, because I, I'm a percussionist and, and I, was, I was banging on stuff since before I could talk or walk. Yes. Everything was music to me. And mm-hmm. the way Stomp organized found object percussion into a show really opened my eyes to the rest of the world and how you can organize a song via the world, like hearing the world, listening to the world. When did you really, when did that click in for you? Because it seems like that's inherent in the music that you're making now. I think it was all a very slow process. You know, you know how it is with evolution, like, and, and let alone like the evolution of, 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 of this, this subtle kind of inner world. Like, I think it was probably around when we really started doing the Nile project that I, that it, that it really clicked for me. And that was, um, do you know about the Nile project? I do. I do. And I, and I really love the Nile project and I would, I would love for you to expand on it because there was a process in that project that I thought was extremely interesting. And it was based off of the, the modal or the, the scale influence per region and how that developed yeah can you talk about that just a little bit because i I thought that was just incredible well you know the the nile project um came about in 2011 we founded it in 2011 i co-founded it with an egyptian ethnomusicologist called mina girgis and we actually were at an ethiopian music concert in oakland california this wonderful band fendik ah and also debo band and they were on tour and we just kind of freaked out afterwards like why is it that we don't have like our our neighbors on the continent like we share an ecosystem egypt and ethiopia um the nile river touches 11 countries uh, actually across east africa sudan south sudan egypt ethiopia eritrea um, kenya uganda tanzania congo rwanda burundi um and you know, why was it that we had to come into diaspora to learn about each other's music? Like, we just didn't understand that. And so we really thought about, it started out as a purely music project, like what would it be like to bring the music of the neighbors to the neighborhood? And um, so that was the real impetus. And then we really started digging into the project and what that might look like. And we realized like, wow, this is not, this idea does not exist in isolation. You know, there's a lot of challenges around how we share water resources that are deeply impacted by how well you know your river neighbor. Um, And so we realized that this project had the power to be impactful beyond just the music itself. And we went on a scout trip in 2012 and we went to five of the 11 Nile Basin countries and um, that was sort of the seed of the of the early Nile um, collective. It's now the Nile Project Collective now has over forty members um, from all of the Nile Basin countries. And we started out um, in a res. The first residency was in 2013 in Aswan in southern Egypt, and we just had this like magical experience of um, you know, all of these musicians together from the Nile countries, and we were going to learn from each other and create music together. 
and spend time deeply, deeply understanding the scales and modes of our river neighbors and also understanding like, what is it that we have so many different instruments? Well, we have instruments that are basically the same instrument just with the slightly different number of strings or ways of tuning, like the kirar in Ethiopia is called sensamea in Egypt. And wow, we have this, it's kind of like a built-in way of connecting to each other. And what is it, what is it when those instruments can be in conversation through these different scales and modes and mutual learning and collective songwriting process? And it was like this feeling of, I was waiting for you all my life and I didn't even know it. You know, it was it was like that. It was magical. Like we were all just in love with each other. and We all just felt like we had found we had found a new musical family through through that process. But I think, you know, it was also really overwhelming musically because there are so many traditions in the Nile Basin. There's 500 million people and, you know, many thousands of musical traditions and we knew that we couldn't possibly, we can't represent that. Like it wasn't about representing that, but even the say 20 or so traditions that were, you know, uh, present between the people who were actually there, man, each of those is a lineage. Each of those had a deep ancestral heritage and, uh, and you know, it had, it, it, it was all branches. The branches just felt so infinite. And so we all had to kind of open, we had to open up in this new way. And we were actively asking the environment of the river to come into the way we were thinking about music and the way we were thinking about the sound. So that's when it really clicked for me. Um, and that's when I was able to really bring it all together in terms of listening to the world around us as a actively musically alive place that itself uh, contributes to to our understanding of music and cultural history. What was one of the things that surprised you when you started doing that project? Did there <laughs> was there something that jumped out at you that you were just like what what how 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 come I never knew this before or um I've I've known this a lot it's just been it hasn't been articulated in this way. What was what were some of those things that jumped out at you that was really this this intense deep learning experience i mean there were so 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 many of those moments like first of all the ugandan drummers mm. um and musicians the the you know lawrence okello and michael bazibu were the two ugandan musicians who were there in that residency and for example like first of all i didn't even understand how they were virtuosos on probably seven or eight instruments uh, they played all the traditional instruments and did the dancing and they were like, they were giants. So like one of the first things that just, just like really, uh, we were just, everybody was just in a pure shock place was about the Ugandan rhythms because we couldn't catch them. Of all the things that everybody just became so humble, like right from the beginning was the Ugandan drumming. It was like, unless you were, you know, really really in the circular pattern of one particular instrument like good luck finding the one and so and these are all like accomplished musicians who were humbled hum just like just in so you just you were you were like okay I'm in beginner's mode right now and I'm just gonna like enjoy that and revel in that that was one thing or like Alfred Gamil um, who was teaching us about 
quarter tones in Egyptian music and like really how you catch on to what that is. Like <laughs> that was that was mind blowing. And then, you know, those moments when we would be we would be on the roof of the Fekra Cultural Center and it would be like like now now we're gonna write a song about this moment right here, just this and how do you how do you capture that sense of openness in a song? And and there were those moments. It was just it was kind of this endless um, sense of encounter. I've actually never experienced anything like that. And and um, yeah, I'm so I'm so grateful to have been able to have that. How did you guys teach each other? each other's music and tradition and songs and styles. Like you mentioned the Ugandan drummers. And I remember um, when I would do a lot of kind of hybrid drumming between um, African drummers and American drummers, right? Mm-hmm. American music styles, the teaching is, is a very Western style of teaching. You know, we, we, you know, we use time signatures and we use measures and we use stanzas and we use, you know, things that are very classically oriented towards jazz music, popular music, so and so, yes. on and so forth. But it has this very Western classical background, right? When I started learning West African drums and African drums as a child, that didn't come into play. It was sung, like everything um, was either spoken, it was sung or it was talked. rhythmically so the question of the one would always come up like I would always ask this question where's the one and the concept of the one didn't exist Mm -hmm. right they were just like what is this yeah they were just like (laughs) what is this one you Americans keep talking about like all you guys keep talking about this one what is one you know what I mean so it was it was it was interesting to learn how to how to play using a vocal tradition or storytelling tradition. How did you guys do that with one another? I think it was just really with parts. And they actually did think in terms, there was a one. Mm. Um, there, <laughs> there was a place where the cycle started, but um, so, but it was really about like giving like just the parts and how the parts interlocked. So it was about like how, like, here's your part. Here's the relationship between your part and the second part. Here's the relationship between these two parts and the third part. And now let's try to keep that going while the kind of talking goes on above it. And then beyond that, you know, as an, another really interesting thing that happened in that project was that, um, you know, all the singers were all band leaders of their own projects. So none of us had actually been backing vocalists in other people's projects. And we were all, and because and, everybody would take turns as, a, you know, being in a chorus and being the lead singer. So, um, so that was actually another really amazing part of that experience because all of the singers learned what it meant to be instrumentalist as a singer like the chorus here's the chorus part and that was that was an amazing it actually changed me as an arranger um it 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 really changed me as an arranger but i think it was really all about relationships it's all about the the relationship of parts to each other were there regions that related closer than other regions 
Yes, definitely, definitely. And I think that has those those had to do with historical relationships. Um, and some of those were very much about geography. For example, you know, the Ethiopian and Eritrean music, you know, was related and the Kenyan and Ugandan and Tanzanian music had kind of more of a relationship. And part of that was because those lines are colonial lines, but there are, you know, tribes and ethnicities and groups that would cross those lines. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's different. You know, the lines on the page don't necessarily tell the story and the Rwandan and the Burundian music had a relationship. And then the Sudanese and Egyptian music had a relationship. And so, and, and those are also ecologies, like between all of those things there, it's like the Great Lakes region, you know, the Ethiopian highlands. And then as it, you know, Eritrea is the lowlands, but it's between Ethiopia and the, and the Eritrea is right along the Red Sea, of course. And then, you know, Sudan and Egypt have that relationship of being right next to each other. So the musical relationships were very much geographical relationships um, and ecological relationships. And but our idea was but they're also colonial relationships. So it's how the British thought about East Africa and um, how certain systems of, of certain political systems were also set up around those ecologies. But we were saying like, actually the Nile as a whole is an ecosystem and what happens when the, the entire ecosystem develops a relationship to itself outside of these old colonial boundaries. Right. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up all over the place. I was born in Ethiopia and I left when I was about two and we went to um, Germany and then we came to the States pretty soon after that. I was only in Germany about six months. And we were in D.C. for a couple of months. And then we lived four years in Iowa, um, where my first memories are. And uh, we went there because my dad had a college professor who uh, was living there. And we literally did not know anybody else in the whole country. And my dad's college professor said, come on out and live with us. So we went to Iowa. And then four years later, my parents got residencies in, um, in Brooklyn. Uh, at Kings County Hospital. They're both physicians. And we moved to New York and I did my elementary school years in New York. And then we moved to Florida and we were in Jacksonville, Florida and Gainesville, Florida. And then I went to school at Yale. So I was in Connecticut for four years. And then I was in Seattle for almost two years after graduating. And now I've been in the Bay Area for uh, almost 14 years. Where was your strongest musical influence? Um, definitely Brooklyn. Definitely, definitely, definitely Brooklyn. You know, those years of, um, well, like, like in terms of a place from where, of growing up, like Brooklyn was a huge impact on me. And it was like the years of early hip hop. Um, or maybe you could call it second wave hip hop, you know, the eighties in Brooklyn. And, um, and and but also jazz as like a, a living music being played as you would walk through the streetscape of New York and street musicians and having that experience. And then um, but then, you know, when I moved out to the West Coast, that was like a whole other thing. And I really when I, I moved out to the Bay when I was um, 24 years old and um, I just felt so taken with 
the like it was the first time where I was really encouraged from all directions in a 360 way to just really pursue music. And I, I had so much permission to do that, I think. And it was because of singer songwriters in the Bay Area where it's like, yeah, three chords in the truth. Don't be afraid to just start, you know. And so the Bay was like a, a place where I could just jump in. And then, of course, like, you know, the the Ethiopian music of my heritage and my ancestors, that was always the music inside of the home, wherever, I, wherever we were inside of our home, there was always Ethiopian music playing. When did you decide this is what I was going to do? Did, did you always have that urge to be a musician or was that the Bay? Did the Bay make you the musician that you are? Well, you know, it's kind of like what you were saying about how you were, you know, banging on things before you could even speak. You know, there was a drummer inside of you waiting to be, you know, to express itself. Like, that's how I felt about being a singer. I, you know, I sang before I spoke and I'd be three years old in Iowa asking people if they wanted to hear Twinkle Twinkle Little Star on the bus. You know, I was just like performing always. But when I moved to the Bay Area, it's when I actually gave myself permission to take it seriously because, you know, coming from an immigrant background and, you know, my parents being scientists, they were very much like, this is like, oh, that's a nice hobby, you know, and I had to just, I had to just like fight against that. And, and, you know, it just took being a little older to be able to be like, oh, wait, this is this little voice inside of me that tells me I really need to be making music. Like, actually it's not going away. It has not gone away this whole time. It's not going away. I better start listening. And then when I really met all the musicians out here who were making music relevant to their community and their city and, and their identity and beyond in a way that was socially relevant, I was like, Oh, okay, this is how I can do it. This is how I can really do it. And, and at, from that point on, it was like every step I took towards music, music took 10 steps towards me. Was the Ethiopian community a big influence in your in your writing and in your style of, of play? Because the way it sounds, it sounds you, you definitely have that jazz influence, hip hop influence foundation. But then on top of it, there's this incredibly strong these incredibly strong overtones of the Ethiopian and the Amharic um, influence but not not just language but rhythmically as well rhythmically yes yeah those rhythms man they're just <laughs> they're so bad yeah the those, they're, are... they're they're often like and and i think you have a, just a wonderful way of of making those rhythms accessible to people who don't really listen that way right because it is on top of this jazz foundation how how influential was that how conscious of a decision was that when you started writing well i think for me it was just like i <laughs> It's this funny thing where, you know, because I was kind of a late bloomer into the music, um, I just decided, like early on, I just decided I was just going to, I was just going to see what came out. And what ended up happening was that one song would be like more jazz and one song would be more singer songwriter and one song would be more Ethiopian music. And it just took me 10 years of songwriting to understand 
how I could bring them all together into one sound. So that was, and that was my last album where I really feel like I finally, finally achieved what I've been trying to achieve this entire time, which was, you know, doing exactly what you were saying, which was bringing in the Ethiopian rhythms as a foundation, but also, you know, not letting go of those foundations that were also inside of me. And it just took me a long time to figure it out, you know, because there's not really music out there that does that per se. Like, you know, the, the, my, my mentor, Mulato um, Astatke, the godfather of Ethiopian jazz, you know, basically I went to Ethiopia in 2011 with my band and he came to my show and he was like very complimentary and very nice. He was like, he was, he really liked my voice. He liked my songs, but he said, you know, when you play the Ethiopian songs, he said, you're playing them in the style that we created 50 years ago. He said, why are you doing that? He said, don't do that. He said, don't play this music like we played it 50 years ago. You have to find your contribution to this music. And that is an exploration process. And you need to start exploring that right now. What is your voice in this music? And he just kind of stopped me cold and I was, and then I realized I needed to be way more methodical about that process. And that's really what allowed me to find my voice inside of that. And really through the last album, when the people move, the music moves too. So when you said you had to be way more methodical about the process, what had to change? Um, well, at first I had to become an arranger, you know, I mean, just of my own music, but I had to really like before that I would be very loose with my songwriting. It would be like, I would was really thinking about like chord changes and the um, melodies and the lyrics. And um, I would think sectionally, you know, I was thinking more like a singer songwriter. And then after that point, I was like, oh, okay, I, I, you know, I'm really working with, I decided to work with traditional rhythms and I was, for the most part, and I was like, all right, well, I'm going to have to be very specific about this sound because it walks such a fine line. So, okay. So I started, I wrote, I wrote the bass lines and, you know, was like, okay, this song is going to work with this rhythm. And I was writing the horn parts and, you know, but also writing like, okay, what is our approach we have to have like a, an approach to harmony because, you know, how Ethiopian music treats harmony is very, very different from how jazz harmony works. And so I just started make everything was a decision. Like it stopped being like, like before it would be this very kind of general thing I would bring to the band and we would all sort of figure it out. And then, then after that conversation with um, Dr. Mulatu, I just became like, okay, this is, this is the song this is it as it, you know, as it, as it lives in this demo and, and on the page. And like, I just had to be, I just had to get into every nitty gritty detail and be like, okay, our interpretation is going to, everything's on top of the beat now. Like nobody gets to like, you can interpret it this way, but you got to be on top of the beat because you know, the Easties we're on top of the beat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Can't lay back, you know? Um, so, so it was like that. And it was really, 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 really fun. <laughs> Did you travel to Ethiopia a lot as a kid? 
No, I didn't. I didn't go to Ethiopia until I was uh, 21, you know, after I left. And that was because we had left in stealth. You know, we left, um, we just left and we weren't supposed to leave. And um, so we couldn't go back until the government changed. And then after the government changed, we were able to return. And since then, I go every year, every year and a half. Um, oftentimes there's a lot of political influence um, behind Ethiopian music. I find that I know a lot of Ethiopian singers who are who are really interested in what's going on in the country and the changing of the country. And Ethiopia seems to be transforming very quickly, actually. Um, how how do you as a musician contribute to that change? And are, are you aware of it? And does that do you feel that here being in in um, the Bay Area, being in the United States? I mean, you know, for me, I, I do. It, it's something that has to be negotiated personally for everybody. You know how you're going to be involved politically. And, and I do think that, you know, Ethiopian musicians are kind of they do. Um, a lot of them are involved. You know, for example, like after Abdi, the new prime minister, came into power, like a ton of people were writing songs about Abdi. And that was really sweet. You know, people were excited and feeling very hopeful and, and things like that. Um, for me, I'm very aware of the political changes going on in Ethiopia. But it's also like it's it there's like a tension, too, between diaspora singers and singers who are based in Ethiopia because there's also a feeling like, there can be a feeling like, well, you know, first of all, like, we're not, like, if you're not directly subject to what's going on over there, like, if you're not living it in your everyday life, like, it's a different, it, it's a very different experience to be um, politically involved, because you're doing so at such a distance. So there's a real kind of tension between um, like very political people based in the diaspora and very political people based in Ethiopia itself. So that's something I really want to acknowledge because, because I don't live there and I haven't lived there since I was a, a little kid. Um, but Ethiopia is changing very, very, very rapidly. It's changing so fast. It can be hard to keep up. Um, I think one of the big differences in the community between the time when I was growing up and the time now is just actually how big the diaspora has gotten. Like when I was growing up in most situations, we were the only ones, you know, like at my school in Iowa, my school in Brooklyn, like there was just, there just weren't other Ethiopians around. They're just, they just weren't around. And so, you know, now, for example, my little cousins growing up in Seattle or New York, things like this, like they have, a whole community around them. Um, and so, so, so I think there is a, a very different feeling that goes along with that. But at the same time, like, I feel very connected to Ethiopia. I feel very, um, very much, um, you know, just, just deeply connected and related to it. And, you know, another thing that's really interesting is that, so my 2015, in 2015, the my the video for Chemichem, I like your Afro came out, and also at the same time my TED Talk came out, the unexpected beauty of everyday sounds, and both of those went viral in Ethiopia. So like Chemichem is still on national TV every day, 
So like when I go to Ethiopia, I can't walk down the street. Like people recognize me, they stick their head out the car window and they'll be singing Kemekem to me. Um, and it's like, it's really like the only, like in Ethiopia, I am a big public figure. It's, it's become this very interesting, and that's just in the last few years, but it's this very, very interesting thing. And I think that, you know, also people are hungry to have themselves reflected in these like international public ways that, you know, that are nuanced and empowered and they're tired of the old tropes. And it's not that I am that, it's just that I'm one, I'm a part of that, you know, I'm, I'm a part of that kind of, you know, um, empower empowerment of like, hey, we are this like powerful, you know, historically deep nuanced people and we need all kinds of ways of representing that. And, and I feel very grateful to, to be part of that. So how would you define your sound now? I mean, I still say, I, I say I'm, right now I say that I, I make Ethio jazz music. Um, and that has three streams in it. Ethiopian music, pentatonic scales and rhythms, you know, jazz and an approach to improvisation and phrasing and um, singer songwriter sound. That's me, those three things, jazz, Ethiopia, singer songwriter. I want to go back to talking about your influence as far as like how you make your songs. You seem to really have just as much of an ear for things sonically as you do for things um, as organized sound, right? So um, you, 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 you tend to um, find the music in just the wave of sound. Right. Rather than it having to be something that is what we call, quote unquote, musical, a song mm -hmm. that's already written or uh, a, an instrument that has been played. Um, what do you hear first when you start writing your music? Do you hear sound or do you hear an organization of song? I don't hear an organization of song first. It really comes out of sound. And it's something that I, tr I like to think of like writing songs as a mix of discipline and mystery. And the, the mystery is catching the sound. Like um, you, you catch it, you know? And, 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 that's, and that mystery is also being humbled to it. You know, I love that Leonard Cohen quote that says, like, if I knew where the good songs came from, I'd go there more often. <laughs> you know, like it is, there's that mystery aspect. So it's like, I can catch a sound like, like you catch the cooking, like I caught the cooking pan lid, which was part of my TED talk. And then it became, that song actually became the first song on my last album. And that song was called This Was Made Here. And that's all the cooking pan lid. And that was where that came from. But you know, it can be like, a, you know, the, the strange way that a stove lights or like, a, like, oh, people are making a pattern with their footsteps and they don't even, they don't even realize it. And, or it can be like the way that every single thing has a melody. You know, you're like running your hand along a rail or you hear, uh, you hear a little kid running their hand along a rail and it's like, oh, that's a nice interval. 
like, check that out. Let me hum that and just sing it into my phone and then I'll come back to it later. You know, um, or, or the melodies that just come to you on their own when you're like, for me, it's usually around water, like washing dishes or, you know, in the shower or just like anytime I'm around water, even brushing my teeth, it's funny. I'll get, I'll, I'll just start hearing melodies and just sing them into my phone and, and go back to it later and be like, oh, okay, is this a bass line? Is this a horn line? Is this a chorus melody? Is this a, you know, I'll kind of ask, the, the organization comes later and I'll just try it. I'll just try different things and and mix and mix and match. It's this, it's this way that writing songs is also about, um, like it's it's also about your sense of taste <laughs> you know you you like test your tastes you're like hmm hmm if yeah it is i guess it is like cooking you know when you're like oh wait this needs more salt Absolutely. <laughs> maybe that maybe maybe it needing more salt is like the equivalent of like a high shaker pattern <laughs> <laughs> were you the only musician in your family I have other musicians in my family who are cousins, but I'm the only immediate musician. My cousin Gabriel Teodros is a, an MC based in Seattle. And um, I have another cousin who's, who actually lives in Hungary, who's like a Hungarian pop star. And his name is Johnny K. Palmer, which is hilarious. And, uh, but, but, you know, my mother is like incredibly musical, even though she would never describe herself in that way. She just, the, the way she talks, the way she hums, the way she like makes jokes, like everything about my mother is so musical. She would never claim it, but she's, she's just, she's like constantly, constantly making melodies. And how did your parents influence your music in any way from the, from the other side of the brain, from the scientific side? Well, I'll just say like my dad is a, huge influence on me and part of that is like as a performer like my dad is the brightest human you'll ever meet he okay. just like beams he beams and when he comes to my show he'll he'll come on stage and dance with me and everybody will just like he just he just inspires joy in people and I think a big part of you know my job in my shows is to just be as much like my dad as possible, you know, on stage, just, just like beam and shine and be, and be so free that it inspires other people to feel free in their bodies and free to express themselves, you know? So that's a kind of subtle, a kind of subtle way that my dad is in every single show that I ever do. Um, I, my, my parents are absolutely in, in the intellectual side of of what I do, like they gave me this feeling like everything has to have an intellectual rigor and, you know, like explore your concepts, know how to explain yourself and, you know, test things out. Like, okay, use the scientific method in your songwriting, you know, <laughs> have a hypothesis and see if it works. Um, and um, that that's pretty fun. That's pretty fun. It's a fun way of approaching it. And also, they gave me the, but they also, they, they gave me the great gift of not seeing, um, of, of not seeing music as something that's other from science and not being afraid of science or, you know, conversations with people for whom that is their, 
for whom that is their world. You know, like I can have a conversation with a scientist and we can, we can, you know, scientists are some of the most creative people that I know, you know, not just my parents, but all the people I've met through Ted and things like that. So like they, they gave me a relationship to another kind of mind and, and be like, yeah, Hey, we all belong at the table and we can, we can learn from each other. And how do you get, how did you get to become a Ted fellow? Oh, I applied. Yeah. I supplied. I applied for a ton of stuff. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm just a big, I'm just a big applier. <laughs> and, and when you got contacted to actually be a fellow, uh, what did you think? Did you, it was, it, was it something that you always wanted to do? Was it something that you applied for on a whim? Well, well, I always liked to, to speak. I always felt very comfortable as a public speaker. Like even when I was a kid, I would do different things, storytelling contests and stuff like that. So, um, so I actually found out about Ted just from a friend and this was in 2009. And I remember very, very distinctly, like deciding I was going to, I was like, Oh, they have a fellowship. I'm going to apply. And it was their very first class of Ted global fellows. And I applied and I remember I was, I was finishing the application. It was a Friday and I was in my favorite coffee shop and just waited. And I was like, Oh, I'll, I'll just work on it until the coffee shop closes and then I'll turn it in. And then it was like seven o'clock and it was closing. So I turned it in and I got an automatic reply that said, we're sorry, the Ted Fellows application closed at 5 p.m. today. And I was like, no, 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 no. I did not see a time anywhere on the website. I did not see a time anywhere on the email that they sent me with the information. And I checked again. There was no time that it said it would cut off on that date. So I just wrote them. I was like, hey. You said it cut off, but I didn't see a time listed anywhere. I think you should still accept my application. And on Monday morning, they were like, okay, we'll accept your application. And and then I got it. <laughs> well done. Well done. <laughs> Perseverance. Right? Way to stay in there. Way to stay in that <laughs> pocket. <laughs> Where do you see yourself going now? Like, what, what do you want to explore? Where do you want to explore? What do you want to hear from you? Well, um, there's different things. Like I, I feel, you know, my music has a different resonance now than it did even a few years ago because it so clearly comes from an immigrant experience. And so I think like having a music that is accessible to people in East Africa, in Ethiopia, but also very accessible in the United States is something that has a different kind of message now. You know, I'm making immigrant music that is American music. And so I found myself at this intersection and speaking to these, to these issues a lot. And that's been something that's been very powerful to me. And I've been doing a lot of work with other immigrant artists in particular immigrant women. Um, and like, I'm about to do a little tour in the Pacific Northwest with a singer from Mexico called Diana Gameros. And, um, you know, we've been, we've been doing a little bit of work with different immigrant rights organizations um, around the country and also conferences. And we've been doing some collaborations, the two of us, and that's been a very deeply meaningful and powerful uh, experience. And yeah, that just, I, I, I didn't know there was going to be that resonance and that hunger for, for migration narratives um, that I feel there is now. I think there's a lot of music for me left to write. You know, for me, Ethio Jazz is such a rich 
rich musical tradition and just in terms of the Ethiopian music itself, I feel there is an infinity in Ethiopian music and in five notes, the five notes of pentatonic scales, there's an infinity inside of the five. And so I just feel like there's so many songs left to write. Um, I'm really excited to continue. I've, I've just started doing a few other things with John Jenkins, who is part of NASA's Tess mission. He used to be on the Kepler mission and he's the one who gave me the sonic light curves to use in the supernova song. Um, and so we've been doing a little bit of, of, um, you know, talking about his process. He's been teaching me how to sonify data. And so I'm, I'm really interested and curious to, to learn more about that process and really think about how, you know, we can, I can be working with data sonification and songwriting together. Um, and I'm just so inspired by John Jenkins and his work at NASA and finding, he, he finds Earth-sized planets and other solar systems, but he sonifies data on the side and he's just such a wonderful teacher of that. Explain um, explain sonifying data just a little bit. Unpack yeah. that for us. So, so John has this very interesting story because his mentor was blind. He was a blind, his mentor was a blind electrical engineer. And so they would go to all these conferences and people would put data into charts and graphs to help the audience understand it with a different one of their senses, you know? Um, and so, but his, because his mentor was blind, he could not understand, he did not have access to using his eyes to understand the charts and graphs um, and, to, and to really get into the data in that way. And um, so John's mentor started a, a tradition of sonifying data in the lab, meaning turning data into sound to help you use your ears to understand information in a different way. And what's really interesting is when you put data into, it, it, when, you, when you look at it as a sonification or when you hear it as a sonification, you start to hear patterns um, with data very often. It comes as patterns, but what is a pattern of sound other than a rhythm? It's a rhythm. So like data becomes rhythms and, but it, but it's, it's, for me, it's really about, again, kind of like what we were talking about, that relationship between like a scientific mind and a musical mind, but then understanding how we can, um, when we put data, when we turn data into sound, we get to really deepen our relationship to the structure of the world around us by turning it into sound, to all the structures as we experience them. So it's just a, it's like a world that I'm very, very new in, but very, very interested in developing. And I feel like that has a lot of possibilities for songwriting and, um, and and for and, and and just for giving people like a, another another portal into understanding the world around them and, and another portal for me, for me to understand the world around me did you do you ever think you'd move to ethiopia live there you know i don't think i would move to ethiopia um right now but i feel like um I will, I, I have a very, you know, deep and ongoing relationship with it. But for me, it would be really hard to leave my parents. You, you, my, my, so much of my immediate family is actually here and on the West Coast. 
that it would be it would be a distance that I would I, I wouldn't want to be that far away from from my family even though I have other family you know over there but my you know with my immediate family being here it'd be hard for me to leave them right well Mekleet it's been wonderful 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 to talk to you can you tell everybody how to find you where oh, are yes. you where are you are you in the socials the websites the ted talks the youtubes <laughs> tell it give us everything give us everything because we want to yes. become avid followers so my website is mcleetmusic.com m-e-k-l-i-t music.com um that's also my handle on twitter and instagram mcleet music and uh, my YouTube is youtube.com forward slash Maclit Hadero. And if you ever forget how to spell my name and you're like wondering, you could even just Google Ethiopian singer San Francisco and I will come right up. Boom. <laughs> there it is. Wonderful. What well, has been such a such a pleasure talking to you and likewise. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been an honor, and I, I love your music. I love everything that you have to say, and I'm a I'm a huge fan. Huge. Well, fan. I cannot wait to meet in person, and um, I really thank you for um, taking the time to to talk with me and to you know, to do what you do, because I know that this, this takes a lot of work and um, we need more platforms for telling our stories like this one that you've created. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for being on the show. And yes, 100% meet in person. We're going to make that happen. We will stay in touch. Yes. All right. All right. All right. Till next, so time. Til next time. Till next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Afrofuturist podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be a sponsor of the show, please contact me at AhmedBest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or at AhmedBest on Twitter. If you have any ideas of any great guests that we would like to talk to on the Afrofuturist podcast, please contact me again at AhmedBest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or contact me on Twitter at AhmedBest. Thank you all for listening again, and I'll see you next time.